This is episode number 116, Sufferfest Beer Company CEO, Caitlin Landisberg. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. I still call Sufferfest a happy accident because it was a selfish need. I really did this for myself, my run club, maybe the girls after my track workout <laughs> benefited from this first, and it really was this slow burn incremental understanding that a lot of people wanted this type of brand and beer in their lives and that was just exciting because it was a passion project and something that i really identified with welcome back to the show to repeat listeners and for those of you who are new my name is sonia looney and i'm a pro mountain biker and i focused on ultra endurance mountain bike events and i've won races all over the globe I've been writing stories for years about the mindset and the things that I've learned about life through taking on the world's hardest challenges. And it's been a huge honor to start this podcast about two years ago and be able to bring other people's stories to the forefront of the conversation. I also own an apparel brand called Moxie and Grit. We make fun socks, t-shirts, and soon cycling kits. I also have a community, The Plant Power Tribe on Facebook and a cookbook, The Plant Power Tribe cookbook I've created to help support people who want to add in more plant-based foods into their lives to make it simple and easy and to be healthier. I'm also a keynote speaker and I love speaking about mindset and how to be more positive. I'm stoked you guys are here and I'm excited to hang out with you today. If you're enjoying the show, please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That way you can get notifications every week whenever new episodes pop up. And also we are on Spotify. So if you like listening there, check us out. If you'd like to support my work financially, I have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show where you can throw a couple bucks at the show per month. And it really does help. We have an entire team that works really hard to make sure that these episodes get out on time and sound amazing. So thank you to my team, Roma and Tina. And thank you to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon. All right, so let's get into today's awesome guest. I'm super excited. So her name is Caitlin Landisberg, and she is formerly known as Caitlin Looney. We aren't sure if we are somehow related, but if our interests in business, endurance sports, and beer are any indication, then I'd say we're pretty much sisters. I love today's special story because it's one of transparency, of inspiration, of hard work, and most of all, of courage. Caitlin is a former college tennis player turned trail runner and was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, rendering her unable to consume gluten. And that meant her favorite post-run beers were off the list. I remember I tried eating gluten-free a long time ago for about six months, and I was pretty sad about the beer part. And this was probably like 10 years ago. She couldn't find a good-tasting gluten-free or gluten-removed beer, so Caitlin took it upon herself to learn how to brew her own beer. And I can respect how much work that is, my dad has been a home brewer since I was probably in middle school, so I've seen the whole process. And outfitted with a homebrew kit that was a gift from Caitlin's husband and a can-do attitude, she got started. And what happened next, she calls a happy accident. Her recipes became wildly popular and in high demand, and she founded her company, Sufferfest Beer Company. And it's beer for athletes. 
And upon inspection, I found that the beer had delicious twists to it, like black currant or sodium to help aid recovery. And when I first tried the beer, I had no idea that it was gluten-free. Every gluten-free beer I had tried was disgusting. So it's pretty interesting how she made it taste good. Another thing you might not know is that Caitlin was one of Strava's first employees and the former director of marketing there. So armed with knowledge of how to build a brand and how to build a community, she applied what she learned and has created a wildly successful business, Sufferfest Beer Company. In this episode, you'll learn how Caitlin built Sufferfest Beer Company out of nothing, how to build community, what is gluten-removed beer, some of the interesting rules in the beer industry in terms of packaging, how Caitlin dealt with setbacks, the acquisition of Sufferfest Beer by Sierra Nevada, the difficulty of being a mom with very young children and being a CEO and how she does it. And we even talked about pregnant athletes and pregnant career women and just had a discussion about that and what it's like right now. Big thank you to Kuat Racks, our podcast sponsor. They make bike and outdoor racks to suit all of your awesome travel needs. And I've been using the Sherpa rack, which has two trays and is a hitch mount rack. But if you have e-bikes or you want to put more rack or more bikes on your rack, you can get the Envy rack. And that one holds more bikes and can support more weight. They also make roof racks. So if you want to put your kayak on the roof or your skis and have the ultimate mountain adventure, they are ready for you. So go to kuatracks.com, K-U-A-T racks.com and check those guys out. Awesome, you guys. I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. I'm so excited to bring to you Caitlin Landisberg. My fellow loony. Hey. That's so awesome. I don't think I've ever actually met another loony outside of my family. I haven't either. I've seen some on TV. And I remember first seeing your name in all the names that sort of crossed my feed and Strava and on the early days. And I thought I, I'm destined to be to meet her one day. And we have a loony here that is a badass cyclist. So it's nice to finally uh, connect. I know. And it's funny, we probably have some really similar stories to compare about getting teased in school. <laughs> yes. Yes. Looney Tunes, Lunatard. I've been called them all. Lunatard. <laughs> I, I have not had that I, one. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I've definitely heard some, but their terms of endearment now. Now that I'm married, I always thought I would take my husband's name and I have. That was one of his requests. And I miss Looney so much. I actually try to use it whenever I can. It's a special name. And so I, I love it now. <laughs> I know. It's fu so funny how that works. Right? Um, you were the director of marketing at Strava for a while, weren't you? Yes, I was from like early 2011 through 2014. So when did Strava early start? So I, they were founded officially in 2009 and got their first round of funding 2010. And then I joined them as their first marketer. I think I was number six or seven. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so it was a small crew. We would do stand up with the entire team every morning. We'd all eat lunch together around a little table at fifth and mission um, in the Chronicle building and, you know, just exponentially grew right before our eyes. I think I left and there was a hundred plus folks and we had moved a couple times and we were tackling run and international and it was a really great, fascinating, fun ride. So what were you doing before that? I have always been in tech. Actually, I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm a bit of a Silicon Valley brat. I went to school in the Midwest and 
immediately after enough winters there, my spoiled bratty ways definitely brought me right back to the Bay Area weather. And I started taking summer internships at just tech companies, one of which was Adobe Systems. I think that was my first job, Adobe Systems in San Jose, and then worked at Mozilla Firefox and a couple of startups, but always in high tech, always focused on product and also focused on building community, which actually translated really nicely into my role at Strava, pairing my love for running with building community and marketing for them. And then those lessons and what I was focused on at Strava have really, really translated more than I ever expected and realized to my new role at Summerfest. So it's all led me down a path to where I am now, which I'm grateful for. But certainly I'm now, as I describe it, on the other side. CPG and working with physical products, for me at least, is one a lot more messy stuff and real breakage happens. But I, I love the physical aspect of having a real product that you can touch and taste and feel and actually see someone buy it. So it's, I think, much more gratifying these days than software. What were the main things that you learned at Strava that transferred over to working at Sufferfest? I mean, you you're, you founded Sufferfest, but specifically from Strava, what were those things? You know, it was, I guess, the things that you just picked up that you didn't ever realize, but we built a brand. I don't think we thought of it as a service or something that people paid for, but really a lifestyle. And it was how the team was hired. It was why I was brought on. We loved our sport first and we focused on the selling or the business acumen late, you know, after. And I think so much of that translated into authenticity and just showing up for who your audience is and knowing who they are inside and out because you're one of them. It was the first time where, you know, as a marketer, you're never supposed to be very self-referential. You're not supposed to like look inwards and say, well, I would like this, so they must like it too. You know, we're trained as product marketers to do outside surveys and third-party behavioral studies and always be looking at external factors and bringing those, those sort of that empirical evidence in to make decisions. But At Strava, it was sort of, you know, it took one to know one and trust your gut and go where your friends are and, you know, be the athlete you want to be and build it and they will come. And certainly that is something that I've absolutely translated here at Sufferfest in terms of how we hire and who we hire. We have nobody in the the beverage or CPG industry at our, our company. We're athletes first. We don't really have any place being in this industry, given that our knowledge and skill set doesn't translate on paper, but our understanding of our audience and what we want to do with our business absolutely does. We've built this little beer business like a high-tech startup. And I, I credit that all to the learnings from Strava. But certainly being where our athletes like to run and play and swim and using that community building with sort of true heart of gold purpose and authenticity has really been our North Star and the biggest lesson I learned. Yeah, it seems like the best businesses were founded by somebody that said, I really want this in my life. And then other people wanted it too. Right, right. Yeah. And building the (laughs) culture that you've built. And I think it's amazing because craft beer or beer is just a crowded space. I mean, especially in the United States and being able to come in with a completely different outlook on how you wanted to do it. I think really contributed to the success of it because nobody thought of it the way that you guys did because they were doing it a different way. 
So we should probably get into what it is in case people haven't heard of Sufferfest <laughs> beer. Yeah, yeah. So like, how did this happen? Yeah. Thank you for that, by the way. And agreed. I think, again, I was never trying to start a business, which I think is the reason why we were successful. It's been a very selfish, inwardly facing endeavor. And like you said, there's a lot of other people out there like myself that had this need as well. So essentially, Sufferfest Beer Company has been dubbed a pioneer in this craft beer category called functional or functional and wellness. And essentially, we defined functional beer as very intentionally brewed, purpose-brewed beer with non-conventional ingredients that enhance enjoyment, aromas. There's For compliance reasons, I'm, I'm going to probably stop that definition there. But what I would say about that is that we listen to our audience intensely, and we understand the kind of beer they want, and we brew for them. And our audience are people like me and hopefully like you that earn their beer in a variety of ways through the sports that they love. Um, so from day one, I guess how this all sort of happened in a nutshell was, you know, I've always identified myself as an athlete. I started running ultra distances on the trail back in 2009 or so and really got focused on it. Of course, when I was at Strava and it was part of my life, but I was also really focused on a healthier diet, a cleaner diet. I was going through a lot of trouble with an autoimmune deficiency and rebuilding a lot of the foods that I could digest. And generally, my my nutrition was something that I was thinking a lot about. And that moment that I crave beer the most typically happened at a finish line or after a track workout. I actually never identified myself as a beer drinker, but Gosh, thinking back at it, you know, the times that I needed it most were always paired with my sweatiest endeavors. And so I started developing a beer in 2012 that I wanted to see in the world that sort of addressed my finish line needs. And I looked for other brands. I looked for solutions at that time, but I really nothing really suited my values as a consumer or my priorities as someone who was going to drink an ingredient based beer and sort of took matters into my own hands and, and started doing that. So my boyfriend, uh, Stu, who's now my husband in 2012, got me a beer making kit and a brewing course that winter of 2012. And I had my first aha moment. I started brewing beer and realized no wonder we as athletes crave a great beer after a hard workout. There's just, just the, the four simple ingredients alone are just these beautiful, naturally occurring, restorative elements that we always look for anyway. So no wonder they're in a beer. No wonder we love it. And that was my first sort of, again, kind of flicker in my in my eyes around what beer could be and a brand that could be built around that beverage that really served athletes. And that was sort of the beginning. I started making beer, taking courses at UC Davis and honing in on my recipes, developing gluten removed recipes so everyone could drink them safely and comfortably. And uh, more and more people that I was running with and racing with and working with at Strava just wanted beer. And it became less about selling premium to them and more about how to get them a keg. (laughs) And I thought, gosh, you know, this is a little awkward. (laughs) I probably should address this. I was spending a lot of money brewing beer and shipping it places just because I felt like people in my life needed it. But I decided to take a leap of faith and start a business. And that's sort of what happened. So I'm not being very succinct right now. Sorry. But to answer your first question, 
Sufferfest was started and inspired by athletes to brew a finish line beer that people could enjoy and love that understood their type of crazy. And the beer <laughs> is you mentioned is gluten free. Is that what your autoimmune deficiency was? Yeah, it's um, I or have gluten a, removed. Sorry, I don't know if they're the same thing. They're not the same from a labeling perspective, and I can talk a little bit more about that, but it's gluten removed technically. So we use an enzyme to eat away at this prolamin protein that exists in barley, but it tastes great and you would never know it. So we don't typically talk about our beers being gluten removed, but for me personally to digest beer comfortably, I have that requirement out of all of my recipes. So in perpetuity, all Sufferfest beers are gluten removed, whether or not we talk about those things. But that's sort of an oh by the way and bonus element. We just feel like that's table stakes. If if I can if we can do that with food science and it doesn't impact the flavor and taste profile, then why shouldn't we give that extra element to our, our consumers who are looking out for that type of attribute? I think one in five people now eat and drink a no or low gluten diet, not because they're affected from a dietary or I should say maybe dietary, but not from an allergen perspective, but because it's a dietary choice that they've made or they've heard about it from a friend or a coach or a nutritionist or their kid's pediatrician. It's just a mainstream desire now. So why not give that to our beers as well? Okay. So the gluten-free beers are brewed with different ingredients, but a gluten-removed beer is treated with an enzyme. So the enzyme eats away at the gluten? Yes. Cool. Good. You, you, you capture that. Yeah. Gluten-free, technically, if you would label a beer gluten-free, it would have to be made with a grain or I shouldn't say a grain, a barley adjunct. So a sorghum or a potato starch, soba noodle I've seen, rice beer. Those are all technically gluten-free. But like you mentioned, we use an enzymatic approach. So we make a fully conventional base beer like you would any other beer. And then in the post-brewing fermentation process, we add this enzyme that, again, is designed biologically to eat away at this protein, rendering it essentially gluten-free, but technically the labeling process is gluten removal since barley was used in the process. So someone who's celiac can still drink it? Yeah. I mean, this is where, again, from a compliance standpoint and from a liability standpoint, I would always, always encourage if everyone knows their body better, you know, they, you know their body better than anyone else. And so if you're highly, highly allergic to peanuts, for instance, you know, I, I would probably caution you to walk down the peanut aisle and, and try an almond butter or what have you. That's just something that you would have to take into concern about how you digest things. But from a gluten-free and gluten-removed perspective, both approaches are highly, highly validated in terms of a celiac's ability to digest. In fact, my run club, two of the run club members that I was running with at the time that I was starting to brew are celiac and giving them my gluten-removed beers was just a moment of delight. I think they even said beer was back. These girls now just guzzle Sufferfest beer down. But there's a lot of, we're not the only one who uses this enzyme. It's not proprietary. There's a, a variety of brands out there now that use the same enzyme that's available now. And it has been validated by the celiac community as safe to drink. But again, everyone's their own person. And um, I would caution anyone to take an allergy very seriously if it was a serious concern. But safe to drink from my own experience and from my own celiac friends. That's funny. I've actually had the beer. And until I started doing research about you and the company, I didn't know that it was gluten removed. 
Yeah, right. That's the thing. We don't talk about it. There's enough articles out there probably that mention it. So we're hoping that people who are looking specifically for a gluten removed beer can find us that way. But I still feel at this day and age that there might be a stigma attached to whether someone says if we say it was gluten removed or gluten was treated at some point and, and omitted from the beer that they might think that they're not getting the best of the best flavor and taste and profile. And that's exactly the opposite of really why Sufferfest was developed was because when I was looking for gluten-removed beers or gluten-free beers during this whole dietary time in my life, that process was lackluster. There weren't a lot of brands out there that were developing really delicious beers. And I think people who sweat for their beers earn just as good, if not better beer than anyone else. And so feeling like you're settling or feeling singled out is absolutely out of the question for this type of product. And so taste and flavor is paramount. And if we can't design a recipe that's delicious as a starting point, then we won't put it out to market. That's just out of the question. And the beers are infused, right? With like electrolytes or other things? Yes. These are great questions. Again, we're in this category now that's been dubbed by media and the industry as functional or wellness focused. And we definitely pick ingredients like the pollen, like salt. We have 80 milligrams of salt, for instance, per serving in our FKT, like black currant, which is a superfood. We can explicitly talk about the ingredients that we use and we can connect the dots potentially and why we use them for people who are sort of know about food culture and what those foods might represent from a nutritional standpoint. But now as we've matured, I've sort of learned from a lawyer or two that I'm no longer able to talk explicitly about those food choices in our beer as they relate to health qualities. And so even the term electrolyte, I guess we're just sort of talking a little bit about the industry right now, but even the term electrolyte alludes to a health benefit. And because our beers are fermented and so they have alcohol in them, the minute that you go above 0.1% ABV in a beverage, you no longer can talk about health benefits. And so, you know, we've done a lot of studies. We talk about purpose brewing and why we pick our ingredients very intentionally. But unfortunately, given sort of the the landscape and the authorities that regulate the beer industry, we can't describe all the great, great things that we know about these products. But we can listen to our community. We can drink a great FKT or repeat at a finish line and hear more about the types of ingredients our athletes and people like me and you want in, in a diet. And we can bring those ingredients to beers and obviously give a really great, enjoyable beer to someone, but we actually can't specifically talk about why. Even the word athlete on our can has been removed. Athlete, again, denotes that there's someone that's taking a, a healthy approach to their life. And um, that is too progressive. <laughs> for for our industry right now, believe it or not. That must have been really interesting to learn all these things because you kind of came from someone that enjoyed beer, decided, hey, I'm going to brew my own, just figure this out and take some classes and get started. Out of You built something from nothing. And then there were so many different things you had to learn. Like, number one, how do you start an, al- like an alcohol business? Because I'm sure it's different than starting like a t-shirt business or a tech, even like an app business. I mean, really, really different. You had to learn how to build a team and hire all these people that fit your culture. You had to, I'm assuming you had to raise money to scale the business. 
I mean, it's incredible the amount of things that you've learned in such a short period of time. Thanks. Yeah, no. And, and again, that's sort of one of the reasons why I say we had no business being in this business. I mean, I really started from zero and I didn't even know beer was regulated. I didn't even know we had, I had to be licensed to sell beer because I was giving it away for so long. <laughs> Early on when I decided, hey, it would be really kind of fun to have a couple cans at a couple of my local markets, you know, that's when I decided, oh gosh, turns out you do need to be <laughs> licensed and have to pay taxes on this. And, you know, I stay, I stood in lines at the ordinance board in San Francisco. I stood in lines at the TTB and the ABC and went through just a bureaucratic nightmare just to get to a place where I could label and sell beer right here in San Francisco at a few retailers. But to get there even, I had no brewery. I had a 19 liter system in my dad's garage. I was using a partner brewer, sending my recipes to that partner brewer off site to brew our beer and package it. So I was actually running my business from my bedroom. And I still remember when I had to get licensed, you have to have an address for your brewery. I had, I had a bedroom. And so I don't know if you have them in Canada, but certainly in the U.S., if you are applying for a liquor license of any sort, you have to put this big poster that's like a three by five foot poster on the front of your commercial door, your window that says this establishment's going to have alcohol or liquor or beer. It's a prohibition thing that, that is still exists today. And it's like this scarlet letter because it's open basically for any community member to protest it or say, I don't want beer or alcohol or liquor in my community. There's an open number to do that. And so I actually had to put that big three by five sign on our front door of our little apartment building. There was an emergency, <laughs> there was an emergency HOA meeting for my building. They thought that I was running a speakeasy from our little storage facility that was in our garage. I mean, we had to have police, San Francisco police walk through our little apartment once a quarter while I was getting licensed to make sure that I wasn't packaging beer illegally. It was just bizarre to me and absurd, just all the different obstacles that a small business has to go through. And I just sort of learned on the fly and probably lost a lot of time and efficiency to do that. But it also, I think, built a lot of character and a lot of scar tissue at the same time. And made Summerfest Beer Company more and more aptly named. It was just a grind <laughs> every step of the way. I mean, so many setbacks. It just always broke. And there's no truer and better term than Summerfest when I describe building a business from scratch, for sure. And whenever and all these things were happening, I'm sure there are moments where you're like, I want to give up. This isn't worth it. Just like when we do, like I'm sure in your trail races and, and anything you're doing that's challenging, there's moments where you want to give up. So how did you decide not to give up in those situations? What did you do? Yeah, there was a variety of factors. I think when I first started the company, the reason why I didn't give up, despite how hard it was, was because I was challenged by my brother, my dad, my boyfriend at the time people who didn't think I could do it. Right. And I think the last thing you do to an athlete is like, tell them they can't do something. So of course I was going to be even stubborn and figure this thing out because I don't think people expected me to, to figure it out. And then of course, as things started working and I was spending my own nest egg trying to make this thing work, I eventually you know, shared that risk with investors and found a, a friends and family group of investors and once you take someone else's money, 
<laughs> it's definitely a motivation to keep going. Certainly. I think, gosh, what um, a burden. I mean, what a, you know, I'm still so grateful, but the burden of the fact that these aren't just professional investors, but people that you'll have to see again at a social <laughs> event or at a race investing in your company. I mean, one of the founders of Strava invested, in fact, and he was my mentor. And, you know, these are people that you don't want to let down. You're going to figure it out. So that was obviously a motivating factor. And then the third step is then you bring on people that trust you and trust your vision and their livelihoods are in your hands. And there's no way in hell that I'm going to let them down. I'm going to exhaust all efforts for my team who has become my family because they've taken such great risk and faith in this project. And so all those things are huge motivational factors. But again, at the end of the day, and another nod to sort of our DNA here is, you know, our head of operations is a former hockey professional and our head of sales was a D1 lacrosse player. And our head of marketing, she's an, an ultra runner and yoga instructor. We have two semi-professional climbers. I mean, this team is, you know, loves the thrill of a kill and loves to earn their beer and will figure it out hell or high water. And so while we had no business, again, being in the beer business, we seem to have succeeded because we've shown up as athletes and persevered, like made it through. And I, that's what we celebrate, not the results, but just someone putting in a good effort. Yeah. I mean, there was a guy that came on the show, Will Ahmed, and he's the founder and CEO of Whoop, and he played professional squash. And I asked him about yeah. athletes and how what you learn as an athlete plays a role in business. And he said, as athletes, you learn how to fail and you learn how to figure stuff out. And I think that that was really well said. Yeah, that's a great point. And also, I think, especially athletes, as you build a team, it's it's like being back on a soccer team again, right? I mean, we all lose together. We all win together. And, and that's such an important aspect to building a company. It, it wouldn't have worked if it was just me. I mean, everyone on this team has played such a crucial part of, for that. So I'm really grateful for people who took that leap of faith with me. I found a quote from you. I, I read a bunch of interviews that you did, and I really liked how honest it was. You said, the dream is glamorous, but the reality is hard, lonely, and expensive. And I think a lot of times people look at somebody who's achieved some level of success or has built something and they're like, oh, they're so lucky or, oh, they it was so easy for them. And it might look easy from the outside, but it's never easy. And I just, I love that you said that. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's it's so true. It's been just an emotional roller coaster. And it's funny because we commercially launched our first two beers, our Taper and our Flyby, our, our IPA and our Pilsner in March of 2016. And then we were purchased by Sierra Nevada in March of 2019. And people are like, wow, three years, way to go. High five. What a quick little ride that was. But what they don't appreciate is that I started this in 2011. <laughs> I had to learn to brew from scratch all in 2012. I took my, I, you know, I took work off and enrolled in spring courses at UC Davis just to kind of even understand the liquid, let alone how to start a business, right? And so leading up to it, I think was just the real BS times where I just every single day, it felt like I was wondering why I was doing this to myself. Like what a masochistic project. At 2016, even though things broke, it felt so much easier just to actually have a physical product to hawk. 
and to sling around. So, you know, the days are long, but the years are fast. And yes, it's been like a very aggressive timeline, faster than I ever thought to be in the position where we're now in and having been acquired. But I think everyone, myself, of course, and everyone that's been on the Sufferfest team, I think has suffered enough to really appreciate um, what that means and, and why we're so grateful and why we're not taking for granted at all the position that we're in now. Yeah, and as athletes, we can definitely understand and have experienced how the things that we suffer for the most tend to be the most rewarding. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I read that this is Sierra Nevada's first ever acquisition, and it was a 100% acquisition. Yeah. Was that a big surprise? (laughs) Yes. It was a huge surprise, actually. Really, I couldn't have dreamt of a better partner, but I never dreamt of them as a partner because Sierra Nevada is always to me, represented this little quiet house on a hill that, you know, no one ever goes in, no one ever goes out. They just are little worker bees and they produce great beer and it's family run and no one's going to ever enter that ecosystem. And so obviously the partnership comes to a a, a huge surprise to me as well. (laughs) We were in a really interesting position. And of course, because we somehow or some way carved out this category, whether we knew we were doing that or not, we caught the attention of some really large brands who were really interested in working with us at a variety of levels. And so I was in a really unique position of fielding inbound interest from other strategic, other brands outside of Sierra Nevada. And I sort of wrote them off. I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in California. So I grew up with Sierra Nevada in my fridge and my dad drinking it and my uncles and everything. But I never thought that they were really open to, you know, other brands as part of their ecosystem because of their close family roots. And I was distracted, sort of fielding the opportunities that were coming to us and coming to me directly and thinking, you know, these are the folks who are interested and, and you know, we'll continue to, to build relationships here. And just this past October, last year in the end of 2018, I went to a conference to talk a little bit about our community and our community of athletes and how focused we are on reaching runners and cyclists and climbers and people who really enjoy to earn their beer. And right after my presentation, Jeff White, the CEO of Sierra Nevada, presented on growing brands and sustainability and a values-driven company and all these great things that just I knew and recognized in Sierra. And the two of us just happened to sit next to each other that day and got to talking and sharing and we both had this sort of facepalm moment where I wanted what they had. They wanted what I had. And we really got along. We really understood each other and what we both were trying to build at very, very different levels, obviously. But it made a lot of sense. And I think originally, Jeff and I just wanted to collaborate. You know, I think we both thought, gosh, they could brew amazing quality beer. They're so focused on sustainability. We're a B Corp. And like, we can do some really amazing closed loop collaborations with them. And he was thinking, gosh, you know, they really understand their audience and they're really focused on athletes. They're really focused on this new innovative type of beer style. And then these conversations just became just so, so inspired. We started meeting at, at an In-N-Out burger in Bacaville because we're about three hours apart. We started meeting halfway between each other's homes and our discussions around collaboration just got too exciting and there was really no other, I think, idea in our mind other than joining the family completely to sort of make this all happen. And it took me by surprise. And I think it might have taken Jeff by surprise. But 
I think it's a nod to Sierra, one, understanding that the craft beer industry is evolving and they really were trying to understand how it's evolving and lean in in a place that they're not familiar with. And two, they're not going to try and make up a brand and make up a brand promise overnight and just insert themselves into a category. They wanted the real thing and the real deal. And, and I really respect them for that and obviously grateful for that as well. And thought, gosh, if they want to be in this functional category, might as well work with the person who started it or the, the team that started it. So I appreciated their strategy and the fact that this isn't sort of a spinoff or a line extension or a, a, an overnight fly-by-night money grab. They really want to be part of this for the long haul. And so uh, partnering with them just made tons of sense. But I was super surprised, too, that it was even an option. And I'm so honored and flattered. So. Was there any opposition? Because whenever you get acquired, it seems like you would lose some autonomy and some control. So was there any resistance to doing this? There wasn't. I will say that not every partner was fit to be our partner. And I think I was was so happy to have these other conversations that had happened or transpired prior to meeting Sierra Nevada because I knew how different they were. At least I recognized that they were really different based on what they were looking for. The partnership is pretty beautiful in the sense that we are still Sufferfest Beer Company. Our offices are intact. Our people are intact. Nothing's changed and everything has changed in the sense that now the places where we are not good at, you know, just expanding, um, (laughs) they get to absorb that and help us by allowing us to, you know, glom on to their distribution and supply chain operation but we get to sort of keep our strategy, our go-to-market, our focus on athletes, our focus on strong female athletes in particular. We call the shots. And so in some ways, it's a little bit of a dream for us because we're doing the things that we're really good at and that we were always wanted to do. But now we have basically someone who's putting muscles on the mouse and doing all the hard things that we have no business trying to figure out. So the partnership really works in that regard. They kind of leave us be, but help us where we need it. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big decision and you know, it's unfortunate because I'm, I had to make the decision and then my team's impacted, but again, they really give us a chance to compete. And the fact of the matter was, and is, is that we were alone in this category that we carved out for ourselves. And then people took notice that we were selling a lot of beer and that there was a lot of white space. And so a bunch of big competitive brands jumped in overnight that are way bigger and way more powerful than us. And it really does give us a chance to compete in a place where we do have a pole position to really give people exactly the kind of beer that I I think that they've been looking for for a long time. And it would have really sucked to have you know, turn the lights off on this one and close the door without getting a chance to at least try running with the big dogs. And that's what we get to do now. So it's, it's thrilling. Yeah. I bet your vision has evolved in a way that you probably couldn't have imagined. Like looking back, how did you plan the vision for the brand? Because it's expanded, it's grown in different ways and it takes a lot of number one self-belief to say, yeah, like I'm going to go in this direction and this is what I think is right but then also to be brave enough to dream big enough to believe that you can actually surpass what your expectations are for yourself and for your business. Again, I wasn't ever setting out to start a business. And I think that's why it succeeded. I think if I was really 
saying I'm going to start a business and here's a, a gap in the market and I'm going to make this amount of money and I'm going to sell this amount of beer and it's this is what we're going to do. I think I would have been really conservative. I think I would have been really trepidatious about all the maneuvers that I was making. I still call Sufferfest a happy accident because it was a selfish need, right? I, I really did this for myself, my run club, maybe the girls after my track workout <laughs> benefited from this first. And it really was this slow burn incremental understanding that a lot of people wanted this type of brand and beer in their lives. And that was just exciting because it was a passion project and something that I really identified with. And then it became a responsibility and, and then it became something that I thought, wow, let's give it a try. Let's just try. And I think that was dangerous in the sense that I was, I mean, I was dangerous to the rest of the industry because I had nothing to lose. I wasn't here to prove myself. I wasn't here to get purchased or build a company or raise a lot of money. I was here just to serve my friends. And I think that was a huge benefit to me and my mindset, allowing me to develop a brand and keep a vision that was purely irreverent and exciting for the type of consumer that I am and not really focused again on selling beer. And I've always said that we've never focused on actually selling product, which is like probably why I would flunk out of business school. But we focused on doing the things that we love, which was showing up at the crag and cracking open some beers after a night climbing and showing up at a trail house or a trailhead, being at a triathlon that we loved and just, again, serving people the way we knew how to. And I learned that at Strava. I mean, at Leadville, we weren't trying to hawk, you know, our software, people getting are asking people to upload their, their rides after Leadville. We were out there at Powerline literally running little cans of Coca-Cola next to the cyclists on their last climb and giving them cold towels at the very end. Like we appreciated everything that they were going through and that's all we were focused on. And I think that mindset we've carried over into this little beer company and don't really focus on selling. We really still to this day, we just finished, you know, when we finished um, the North Face Challenge, our office is about a mile away from the finish line. So we keep our office open and have athletes come upstairs for free massages. And we don't ask them for anything or, you know, uh, we just ask them to come in and relax. And again, I think that's the difference between our company and maybe someone who's a little bit more transactional in their mindset. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I'm going to change gears a little bit. I read an article in Outside Magazine. I was like, how to be a working parent. And I loved it. And I thought it was really interesting because you said that at first, with your first child, you hid your pregnancy from investors because this was really early on in the business. And especially in light of like the whole Nike thing and just talking about pregnant females who, not even as athletes, but just as pregnant females who are in business or anywhere and how that plays out in these situations. And I mean, I personally haven't a child yet, but I'm really interested in this discussion because I think that it's becoming even more interwoven into the, the discussion in general. And yeah. I wish that there was a way to fix it so that women didn't have to like getting pregnant and having a baby should be this amazing thing. But it seems like it has to be in some ways this mutually exclusive thing where it's like you can either be this business person or you can be a mom who's like really excited about your baby and that yeah. you have to hide it, you know, as an athlete or as a business person because you're afraid people won't take you seriously. So like I would love to hear how you went through that and how you like came to terms with it, I guess. Yeah, are still coming to terms with it, frankly. I mean, 
I'm so glad for this conversation. I'm so glad that it's topical right now and that these really influential athletes are breaking their confidentiality agreements and really talking about these matters. I'm so inspired and so moved and so angry about it. It really hits a raw spot. And I've actually been thinking a lot about what we can do as a brand, what we can do as as anyone with some influence and, and maybe more ears and eyeballs now to continue to push forward. Because I think I did learn the hard way and I wasn't a good example. I wasn't a good leader. And that was my own communities and my own, I think, inner demons projecting onto myself what I thought I was or had become when I became pregnant, which was a high-risk employee, a liability, not focused on the right priorities, potentially an emotional leader and not a strong leader. Like All these things that I probably have heard my whole life and never realized I was hearing them and, and taking them. And in the moment that it happened to me, I was putting those same stereotypes onto myself and allowing me to play out that role of being embarrassed and being scared of people knowing that I wanted to be a mom and what that would mean and what those what that people would be perceiving in me. And my first pregnancy was yeah, it was regretful. And I have a lot of sadness about that. And I really related a lot to, I mean, I can't relate. It's a different circumstance, but Kara Goucher had that beautiful post about her experiencing leaving her son who's going to be operated on because she had these requirements as an athlete and these obligations. And the fact is, is that like, yes, this is a way of life. These are our bodies and we are fucking machines that we can give and sustain life to little humans and build careers and, you know, be all these things. And the fact that we get penalized for that is crazy mind blowing to me. And it's going to take more time and it's going to take steps, but it's going to take people like you and people like me to not be shy and embarrassed, but find a way and find those mentors or find those people to really embrace what having a family is and what having other obligations or passions in your life at the same time. And it's one that I'm really conflicted about because I think that choosing to do both is privilege. I think it's really hard to do both. And in some ways, I have the ability and the luxury to have my parents and caretakers take care of my children so I can go to work and build a career where some people don't even get the choice to do that because financially it doesn't make sense to have, you know, uh, two working parents. And then in some ways, two working parents is the only way to bring an in income. And then you have to figure out how to make it work with childcare or daycare situation that might not be optimal. Anyway, I digress, but it's just such a loaded conversation. But what I will say is Fran was my first child. I definitely had, uh, I made some mistakes and I definitely learned with Hayes, who I just had, he's six months old, that I was going to do it differently the second time around. I proved that I could build a company and sustain a company and have a great culture and lead strong women and men in a workforce and build a family at the same time. And so I embraced the fact that I was pregnant again. It was the first thing I told my investors the minute I saw them. It was a different mindset. But still, I didn't get to do that because I used, I mean, the operative word there was I proved something, right? I shouldn't have to prove anything to have that mindset. And I think that's what I'm struggling with is there's still so many expectations, whether we hear them explicitly or not, but in the workforce, 
women who make a decision to build a family and parent men too that to support their families who are involved parents or dads are usually penalized some way or another for being parents and that's not acceptable and so I think what those athletes are working on right now, what the Athlete Coalition, I don't know if you're aware of that, that's a, a 501c3 that I was got familiar with around this topic, but that's a group of athletes that have developed the resources for contract negotiation, free legal advice, the ability to review sort of parent leave and basically maternity leave policies as you're entering the workforce or leaving your athletic uh, professional endeavors and moving on to civilian endeavors, but they're really set up to to cater to to folks like those athletes that were impacted to really protect themselves and have the appropriate legal resources to get those things changed if they don't or their brands or their sponsors aren't changing them. So again, it's not the solution. The solution is to never have those things and have everyone operate this way, but before I go on too long, I think it's it's just a very raw spot for me. And all that I can do now is really encourage the, the women in my company to follow their careers, which I support wholeheartedly, and follow their personal goals to have a family, which I support wholeheartedly. And whatever we need to do for them to do that, to do both of those things successfully is my number one job and focus as their as their CEO and as their leader. And that's all that I can promise them. And hopefully we can lead by example and continue to change mindsets. Yeah, I think Burton Snowboards is another company that is pretty forward thinking. And it shouldn't even be called forward thinking. It should just be treats women, athletes, workers as humans that deserve to be to be treated fairly. Like <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's no special treatment here, literally asking for equal rights and uh, a framework for for those female athletes. So absolutely. And I think Burton stepped up, Brooks stepped up, stepped up, Ultra stepped up. More and more brands, I think, probably weren't even aware because it's just the societal moray to kind of take whatever you know standard there was and recreate it for their own brand. And so those who quickly address those things, you know, hats off. But I think from taking perspective on that small business or that brand, it's probably costly. There's probably a, a pretty big business case and business decision to sort of change this policy. So again, what can we do to change that framework and have bring in the right sort of HR points of context to understand how actually being on the right side of history and modernizing these policies, in fact, will increase their bottom line over time and, and really helping these businesses understand the value add of, of strong, fulfilled, healthy men and women in their workforce. Yeah. And you mentioned athlete coalition, but does anything like this exist for just people that work? Like I remember I, recently I watched like an old sex in the city episode and the character Miranda Hobbs, who's a lawyer, was trying to make partner at her law firm and she was pregnant. And in the show, she was hiding her pregnancy and didn't want anybody to know about it for all the reasons that we just talked about. So right. I'm just wondering, as a resource for people listening to this, like if, if, if a female listening to this or a man who wants to take paternity leave when their baby is born, like what? I think that that is 100 percent fair and good. Like, where can people learn more about this? Because I honestly don't know. I don't know if you do, but. 
you know, every industry is different. Every policy is different. I have to imagine now that with some research, there are more groups that are in parity to the athlete coalition that are doing that for a civilian group as well. It's usually employment and labor law specialists and groups that are ignited with certain cases that are are similar to what we're seeing right now in the athletic field. But you know, every industry is different. And I would say based on that location and based on that industry, there's more, I think, change and modernization that is happening than others. You know, I, I do, I don't know why I hate to say it, but for some reason it feels cliche to say it, but, uh, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's lean in movement, although I have, there's some problematic concerns that I have with the lean in movement, which is a different conversation, but you know, she has been a really strong voice for a lot of enterprise companies to get on board with highlighting and modernizing their policies around maternity and paternity leave. And in fact, they're now moving into backup childcare policies, which is a really great, great, again, costly. Um, and that's something to always address in these conversations, which is why there is pushback. But a really great movement underway is these backup childcare situations. But oftentimes, if your daycare worker or a kid in that daycare is sick, other children are impacted and they have to stay home so that that illness doesn't, you know, spread among that group. Or if a, a child care worker is sick, then they need to stay home. And often the mom needs to stay home unannounced that day with that child. And that mom is now uh, not working and not productive at work. She's not, been left out of hard and important and potentially decision-making meetings She's seen by potential colleagues that at you know last minute that she wasn't able to show up and had to move her meetings and potentially her character or her consistency or commitment has been tampered with or damaged. And so it actually really impacts upward mobility for parents that have to stay home for backup childcare. So that's a, another category within this whole thing that someone like Cheryl is addressing for the industry around high tech. And so ideally finding those really influential people in each of these industries to hold a torch around how we need to address some of these situations that are leading to women, particularly having to sort of stay back or settle just to sort of take care of their family for a day or two is really an important conversation to have. So I'm not the end all be all or the expert in what's going on in other industries, but certainly I think there's probably great people out there, hopefully holding that torch. And, and I really do hope that I can be part of that group that really shines a light and makes some change and fixes some policy, especially in the beer industry, where it is so underrepresented in terms of, of women and young families. Yeah, I, I think it's really amazing and brave for you to be able to put all that stuff out there. And I think that that does make a big difference. And it does start creating change. And I'm excited that you're in that role that you can be that person for people where you can start carving the way again, and something else too. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. And yeah, thank you for saying that. I do hope that this is a beginning of a new chapter and I can use my role and, and evolve it and hopefully have more meaning beyond beer to impact lives. And I, I'm super fired up about this topic. So I appreciate the question for sure. And my last question is, you're somebody who has achieved a lot of success in your life and always working really hard to push the limits and, and learn new things. For you personally, how do you define success and happiness? It's the question of a lifetime, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I think everyone's trying to figure out what 
fulfillment and success looks like for them. And it's ever evolving as we grow more and more comfortable with ourselves and our own skin. And I would say, you know, really honestly and transparently that success to me over these last few years has been, I think, a little ill-founded. It's been around proving myself. It's about showing people that I can do something, that I can get to the next level, that I can run something and succeed. And that hasn't made me happy. It hasn't made me fulfilled. The times where I've been the happiest and the most fulfilled have been when I've called the shots and I've made the decisions and sometimes the hard decisions to be authentically who I am. And there have been many days where I have said, I don't want to be a CEO today. I want to be a mom today. And I've been really embarrassed to say that out loud. I've been really having a hard time doing that. And I'm really happy to say that most days I just want to be a mom and they are leaving work now at 5:30 when I become a pumpkin and relieve my nanny and seeing my children and knowing that I've made that choice, even though I might be the first to leave the office now feels the most authentic version of me. And because I'm a mom right now, raising two little, little, little people, my running has taken a little bit of a backseat. Everything has sort of <laughs> suffered personally, but I have gotten so much enjoyment from sort of the job of a lifetime right now. And I think just saying that out loud and being authentic to what my needs and what I'm into right now is just so cathartic and what I find as success that I can say that out loud and be proud of the decisions that I make. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really inspiring and really awesome. Yeah. And if people want to get in touch with you and figure out where they can find some Sufferfest beer so they can earn their beer, where's the best place to do all that? Yes, please. We're on Instagram a lot and we like to highlight people earning their beers. So shoot us your images and photos and we'll feature you too. But you can go to our website and there's a find us toggle on our website and you'll see a map of the country and all the places that were available. And right now we're available in Washington, Oregon, California, and Colorado. But soon this fall, we're going to be rolling out nationwide. And hopefully, Sonia, to Canada soon. We'll see. We do our our beer runs down to Washington, and (laughs) we buy buy beer and bring it back up all the time. Good, good stuff. But we're super excited to be getting out to the rest of the country soon. So thanks for the question. And feel free to reach out to me through Instagram, LinkedIn. I love to chat with people wherever I can. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing such great information and personal things with us as well. Problem. Thanks for having me and taking the time. That was such an awesome podcast. I love them all, but after this one, I just felt really inspired and I felt really connected to Caitlin after hearing her story. It's really incredible what you can accomplish whenever you see something that you want and then you just go for it. There's so many different entrepreneurs I've gotten to speak to who started a business by accident because they were just trying to fill a need that they had. Check out Sufferfest Beer Company, pick up some of their beer, take a picture of yourself listening to the podcast with a beer in hand and tag us on Instagram. We'd love to see that. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.